0: Welcome to the Visegrad Insight podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. Uh, my name is Wojciech Shubilski. I am uh, pleased, together with the team and especially with Miles, Maftian, my editorial director, uh, to welcome you to the first opening discussion of this week's series uh, How Does This War End for Europe? This is a series of discussion that we have designed around our recent foresight exercise that produced scenarios for the future of Europe in the context of the war and as we're touring Europe, but this is actually the report, not very long, um, with uh, one page per one scenario explaining also the dynamics and the con- in the context of strategic autonomy of Europe, uh, understood broadly and with uh, some, some suggestions how to reform the understanding of the uh, strategic autonomy and how to build it further, uh, given scenarios may play out. We are stimulating the discussion from Central Europe uh, uh, next to Central Eastern Europe uh, uh, to Paris, Berlin, Brussels uh, and next year also uh, London and Oxford, planning to have an ongoing uh, foresight um, exercise that gives the voice of Central Europe in the European debate about the European future. Greetings, greetings everyone. Hello from Kiev, and uh, especially
1: a very hopeful hello because we still have the connection and electricity everything else. And I do believe that with that being said and with the moderation coming from the capital of Ukraine, from the capital of brave people, it is very important as for now to start our discussion about what if Ukraine wins. but. As a moderator, I will take my courage to define the question a little bit in another way. When, what, what will happen when Ukraine wins? And so today, joining us for this beautiful discussion, we have Alona Kutsko. Alona is the vice president for policy and programming at Globsec in, in Bratislava, where she oversees policy development, research, and programming in such areas as defense and security, future of Europe, global order, technology and society, and strategic communication. Thank you, Alona, for joining us.
2: Hi, everyone. Thank you for inviting me.
1: And also, we have our second magnificent speaker is Rado Albucomanescu. He is a Visegrad Insight Fellow. He's a lecturer in European Integration and BBU University and Cluj-Napoca, Romania. And Radu does his research mainly in international relations and international history of politics. Glad to see you here, Radu.
3: Thank you for the invitation. I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much, Alexander.
2: Thank you so much, Vishak Inside for a stage in this conversation. I'm actually among the lucky ones who get to talk about the more cheerful scenarios because I know you discussed other options as well. So let our fantasy go wild and the dem- imagine the best possible outcomes which are of course without potential negative externalities as well that we'll have to manage i totally agree with Alexandra that's probably a better way to frame the discussion is what happens when ukraine wins. i actually think that in a way ukraine is already winning the very fact that Ukraine managed to be where it is right now, meaning being able to defend against a giant aggressor that everybody thought was undefeatable just a few months before that, so it's already a great step forward and that's already a victory. So now we're discussing how big the victory of Ukraine will be. Uh big uh I think already it's big, but how much bigger, it's up to the what happens next year. And of course, what happens next year depends on the standard parameters of factors that everybody by now is very well familiar with, which means the volumes and type of military aid to Ukraine, what kind of weapons and when it can arrive, financial aids, and of course, the ability of Russia to maintain its own production capacity and financial capacity as well. So for 2023, of course, everybody's eyes will be on the progress made over winter. Uh, My assessment is that we're already in, again, in a more positive scenario than we thought even a month or two ago, because first there were a lot of concerns about how well Ukraine can manage over the winter period of time, given the weather conditions, but also given the potential reluctance of europe uh, who putin was trying to freeze uh, with the energy attacks and energy manipulation uh, but i think it's developing better than expected so i my prediction is that ukraine will keep making progress over the winter just maybe one point of caution and one point of alertness it might happen that russia might take some small pieces of territory uh, somewhere either near Bakhmut or other areas. I do not think it's a point of major concern. It's the tactical maneuver that in no way will change the trajectory of developments on the battlefield. And my prediction is that somewhere within 2023, maybe by summer, maybe a couple of months later, it's possible for Ukraine to reclaim the territory in its
3: 2014 borders. Big thank you. So uh, first of all, thank you to Alina for um, painting the canvas, you know, with the the elements that are necessary to define a victory. My thoughts on on what could happen or the consequences if if Ukraine wins concern, let's say some um, aspects from how this would influence international relations, uh, interaction with the European Union, the position of of Russia. And I would start by saying that uh, I think we are witnessing the first time uh, that a middle power defined as such by the international relations theory in the in the 20th century defeats what is considered to be a great power which now we see is not great at all for reasons that we uh we already know but um i remember that at the beginning of the conflict and you know as as war uh, uh went on um an analyst jumped in of course he would have the two camps uh, um, um, sketched the, the 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 peace versus justice. So those who are in favor of peace versus uh, uh, those who are in favor of justice, uh, which well, the latter uh, uh, being described as more extreme or even radical, uh, or as uh, as uh, Emmanuel Macron said, va ton guerre." Those who are really warmongers. This is a false assertion because you cannot get the peace without the justice, and we have to 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 understand that we have to uh, get um, to, to to build a system of peace around of uh, the fairness of of this. And this is why I'm saying uh, that uh, when we assess the quality of the victory of Ukraine, we have to focus on what I consider to be. Um, the the victory of the narrative, the victory, uh, uh, of course, of politics and diplomacy, but also the victory of ethics. Um, It's complicated uh, from this point of view because the narrative uh, is one, but it has to be stabilized. It has to be accepted by all those who uh, usually are asking for peace more than justice. When I say justice, I mean uh, recovery, the complete recovery of the frontiers of of Ukraine. There is absolutely no possibility to leave Crimea under no menace of of nuclear uh, uh, war because it would create the precedent. And the precedent is as shameful as the 1938 one because it would be, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, the consent of Powers that are in, uh, represented in the in the Council of uh, the Security Council of the United Nations, the consent to a change of frontiers based on the use of force. It cannot be done like that. Not if we want to preserve a system, a multilateral system of any kind, because anarchy issues, and therefore uh um, um, fairness, justice, and the force application of international law is, is, is necessary. Um, I was also thinking about what would happen uh you know uh with with Russia if this kind of victory which is also juridical which is also ethical which is also in terms of narrative prevails and I do agree with Elena that um we won't be witnessing uh radical, change in, in, in Russia, which means not a collapse of the state, not decentralization, not necessarily denuclearization. They will never give up uh, their, their position of power. But most probably, um, it will be the replacement of Putin by someone who understands that this war cannot be won, um, that helps the preservation of the Russian system and uh, state as it is now. And probably while being, let's say, coldly uh, neutral to the West, they will increase uh, cooperation with with China and most probably attach Russia to China in ways that are considered useful uh, to the preservation of the Russian interests.
4: Thanks for having me. Uh, I'll have the pleasure of hosting this session. Um, first, uh, let me briefly introduce my guests, Amanda Coakley from Coda Story, Luke Cooper from LSE Ideas. We'll start with Amanda. Amanda, the screen is yours.
5: Hello, everyone. How are you? Uh, my name is Amanda Coakley. Thank you very much, Pavel, for that kind introduction. And and thank you very much um, to Visegrad for extending this invitation to me uh, this afternoon. I'm delighted to join you all. So, one thing that we were here to discuss about the war in Ukraine and then how that might have, uh, how that might change Europe's social conflict uh, contract, excuse me, for my reporting throughout Eastern Europe, since the Russian invasion, one common thing that comes up for me is fear. And the fear is not just about the war coming across Ukrainian borders. The fear is about um about welfare and about supply and demand and people saying, we want to welcome Ukrainian refugees, but my local school is full now. And I heard this in Poland, I have to send my kids to a different school that's a little bit out of the way for me. I'm not marrying this with kind of rising anti-refugee sentiment it's it's not as straightforward as that it's about this fear that there isn't enough for everyone to go around and the same is happening with housing for example and i don't think enough attention has been paid to what happened in czechia in september and you know around seventy thousand people came out onto the streets now that was fueled by various different factors and i'll get to you know authoritarian narratives or far-right narratives But this was really a whole conversation driven by fear. There's not going to be enough for us. Other people are coming. So I think that, of course, the worry is, is that looking into the future, what this war will do in some countries is that it will make people more susceptible, surprise, surprise, to people who have very simple solutions to very complicated problems. take Hungary, for example, you know, they, we have seen what Viktor Orban and his colleagues did this week vis-a-vis financial aid for Ukraine. There is no massive kickback in Hungary against that. The support for Viktor Orban is still the fact that he is a strong man protecting us, keeping our resources for us. So I think that the first thing, as I to sum up again, is that there's going to be a tendency of People who are terrified of losing the little that they have or losing the state buffer that they believe is left following um, following uh, very uh, difficult and arguably scary politicians who who have very simple solutions to counter that, however, I think that our current European social contract isn't igniting a new generation of leaders. I think when I like when the more and more that I look into history for for writing the more that there's always leaders with new ideas that are kind of drawing people forward I think that we're really lacking in terms of very resilient leaders who are managing to get a great deal of support and are driving ambitious and um agendas forward so what we're actually left with quite a lot of the time is leaders across europe who are definitely stuck in a different time that they are scared or they don't understand things like ai technology that they believe that young people that are engaged in the gig economy are reckless they don't really quite understand the fact that it's not as easy to get um, a, a well paying job they and i think that this is going to create an awful lot of problems because the innovative young leaders allegedly are on the right And they're the ones that are getting people out onto the streets. They're the ones that are igniting social media debates. It's not, you know, some lad, and it's usually a man, um, from, you know, time gone by, that's talking about how the youth of today are buying too many avocados and toast, and that's why they can't afford an apartment. So I think that this is it as well, is also that young people are also not trusting Europe's current social contract. They don't believe in it. They don't believe in that if I pay into a pension that it's going to be there when I retired. They're frustrated that they aren't getting any support for housing, and they're frustrated that they're not getting any childcare support as well in in many countries. So it's all of these factors um, playing in.
6: Hi, everyone. Uh, Pleasure to be here and be part of this uh, conversation. well, I suppose you're going to get, uh, you've had the cup half empty um, analysis from Amanda and I think you'll probably, although I don't disagree with a lot of what you say, I think there's a place for a cup half full um, analysis too. It depends what what we mean and I guess what, we, what trends um, we see, um, because all I would say is that the death of the European social model has long been predicted, but I mean it's never really happened. I think the most you can say is that we still have, you know, a very uneven picture from one state to the other, something that you mentioned as well, um, Amanda, and, you know, in fact, perhaps here you could draw a related parallel with the idea and vision of a federal Europe. I mean, it doesn't matter how obviously central national governments remain to European decision making, every step towards some form of greater integration and cooperation is still often presented by federalists as a step towards federalization, even though I would argue that it it isn't. And of course, in reality, most of the key dimensions we would associate with the European social model, uh, for example, access to free healthcare provision, publicly funded education, uh, state pension provision, Uh, the social wage, if you like, more broadly, um, are still mostly the preserve of nation states. And meanwhile, the minimum regulatory standards for workers' rights at the European level um, are, you know, thanks in no small part, of course, to the lobbying of my government, the UK, when we were members of the European Union, in the, and particularly in the 1980s and 1990s, the level of minimum regulatory standards for workers' rights at the European level are still pretty uh, minimal. So the death of the European social model, I think, is about as unlikely in the short to medium term as the death of the nation-state in Europe. I think the most we could say is that in some national contexts, the social model is under more stress and pressure than it is in others. So we have, we have with us, um, and
7: maybe I will present them in the alphabetical order, Martin L., who is the head of the Foreign Desk in Sudarskie Nowiny. Uh, he regularly ri- writes columns uh, on Central Europe, also uh, works for for uh, Czech radio. Uh, he also comments on the foreign policy issues for the Czech TV, has been head of uh, foreign desk since 2006. Uh, as a reporter, he worked in Latin America, Spain and the United States, uh, but his main focus is Central Europe, uh, the Baltics and Balkans. Uh, he reported on the war in Bosnia. Uh, um, and uh, he holds a PhD in political science. So welcome, welcome Martin. Thank
8: you very much for the kind introduction. This um, situation has created kind of a a feeling that we can see and we are seeing a lot of uh, structural weaknesses of Europe, you know, in in terms of security but also in terms of state of the industry, state of the societies, especially if you if you take it as a kind of long-term view, um as a continuation of the COVID crisis. So you see how, what Europe, Europe is, is or is not capable to do, uh, to protect its citizens, uh, to protect it in broad, broad sense of view. To the way to look at, at it, it doesn't make sense to think about it as a European, uh, separate European project, but we have to look, uh, uh, at it as a kind of a building strong European pillar within the NATO because it doesn't make sense to 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 duplicate uh, uh structures to duplicate you know forces and we can see now especially in the eastern flank uh, facing uh, uh the, the russian threat that uh, the capabilities uh, which are on on the table are provided by the nato mainly uh and uh but but eu uh, has a role as a kind of a not only financing instrument but also kind of a uh, sup- not supporting, it's, it's maybe too harsh to, to say so, but um, as, as somebody who has different roles in, in this field. And uh, if you look at a common European defense, uh, we can we can look at the, com- at the, at the defense industry. And uh, what we have on the table, I don't say any kind of secret, is that we have very fragmented European defense industry, which is not, not able to consolidate. And now it's time to to you know, to use the opportunity and to consolidate, we see it from the perspective of the different companies here in Czech Republic, also in the west, uh, western part of, of Europe. That this consolidation is uh, undergoing uh, because the companies have seen that if they do not have control over the whole supply chain, they are simply not able to produce basically ammunition or tanks or whatever you can imagine. Uh, then uh, the other thing is that uh, it creates kind of a danger. That it, the, this consolidation will go only under under the uh, you know cap of the big Western companies, but we have a situation that the uh, the Central European companies and states are playing a crucial role in supporting the Ukrainian fight and producing some of some of the stuff. And you know, as a kind of ironical remark, uh, we should look at the what cap- kind of capacities we have or we do not have. I would stress which is, you know, if you look at Poland, for example, it just received the first batch of uh, South Korean uh, tanks and and howitzers, and the howitzers are are 24 howitzers, uh, which is kind of a first, and and order came in in August, I should stress. And 24, the European companies which are producing these howitzers are basically two, you know, which are now under production, which is Polish one and and, and German one. Both of them are able to produce 30 pieces per, per year. So it's just, you know, not comparable level or not, uh, not, not the level we, we are facing now of, of attrition in, in, in Ukraine. So this is the, you know, kind of a state of the European defense industry, which would need kind of more money, more investment. And uh, and um, we see that the European armies are kind of, you know, underinvested for 30, 30 years. And if you look at the German Seitenwende, 100 billions, which are, which are still on the paper, not in the practice, I should stress. Uh, that is, um, uh it's about one third of what is needed to get Bundeswehr in shape, uh, in shape needed, you know, according to German experts. So there is a huge gap. Europe has to have to jump, uh, which is leading me to the second point, which is uh, the USA in Europe uh, and 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 then the role of the of this Ukrainian moment. And I'm you know in this I'm skeptic in a sense that. Even we see that the U.S. is playing a leading role in supporting uh, Ukrainian fight, uh, both in political and 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 financial and third, uh, technical terms, delivering weapons. Uh, Europe should build more capacities in 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 that to uh, to face you know long term kind of uh, threat, which which is that the U.S. will still even with the circumstances we are facing. Uh, that uh, for them the most important uh, the, will be China as a, as a kind of uh, global rival. And uh, uh, so Europe should find somehow the long-term uh, way how to keep uh, U.S. engaged on the level we see now uh, in, in context of the Ukraine war. Uh, and so again, basically take its defense and security more more seriously uh, on uh,
7: political as well or as on practical level. Our second uh, speaker today is uh, Georgina Wright, a senior fellow and director of the uh, Institute Montaigne, Montaigne's Europe Programme. She's also a visiting fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the uh, United States, associate of the United Institute for Government in London, and a senior fellow, fellow at the Centre for Britain and Europe at the University of Surrey. Georgina worked also uh, for the European Commission and NATO in Brussels, uh, she regularly represents as institute, institute montaigne uh, on national and international news media she has written widely on uh, for foreign policy uh, outlets she studied at the university of edinburgh and uh, the the College of Europe in uh, Bruges. If, if I may welcome uh, Georgina, of course.
9: Thank you, uh, Michal. Um, and I fear Martin and I may be in violent agreement on lots of things, So, um, so but I'm hoping to sort of provide uh, maybe another lens in that. Um, but I thought to answer your, your question of will Europe ever be an equal uh, to the US, I think there are two ways of answering that question. Um, can Europe become the partner the US wants it to be, which is kind of what Martin was was talking about, and can Europe ever become the the sort of Partner that it wants to be, and there, there I think within uh, Europe, but also within the EU, uh, different countries want uh, very different things. And I think also to answer this question about you know can Europe ever become equal to the US, I think we need to look at really transatlantic relations uh, since the Ukraine war. Uh, of course, no surprise to anyone on this call, but I think on the whole a really good example of transatlantic unity. You know whether it's military, financial, uh, diplomatic support for Ukraine. I think the question is on what. So on defence, I think Barton was absolutely right. It depends firstly on on capabilities and the question now that many European countries are is is rearming, you know, restocking uh, on arms that have been depleted because of course they've donated um, arms and rightfully so to, to Ukraine. Um, and, you know, uh, in, in France, you sometimes hear a frustration of, oh, uh, European countries are buying that, you know, they're not just buying European arms, they're buying Korean arms, they're buying US arms. And my view is that we should be just restocking. And, it, and it, at this point in time, it doesn't, that shouldn't really be an issue. But longer, medium to longer term, um, Martin's absolutely right. We should be thinking about uh, how we spend more on defence, how we invest more in, in the EU defence industry, how we go from having a, a defence industry that produces in time of peace to a defence industry that is able to produce in time of war. Uh, that's very different. How do you access critical uh, materials? Um, and and I think all of that thinking is ongoing. You've seen it in the France's recent... Um, National Security Review, you see the Commission identifying supply chains and weak spots. So I think that that is ongoing, but obviously needs to accelerate. Um, I think on the industry point, that's going to be the really, for me, the big one to watch out for next year. What does the EU do? Does it head towards a common industrial policy? I don't think so. But will it try to coordinate industrial policy at the European level? Very likely. Um, And you've seen with the Inflation Reduction Act, many European companies saying, well, actually, the American government is, you know, subsidizing industry, uh, green industry that's that's in the United States or located in the U.S. So, you know, part, some industries have been moving parts of their activity there. What is the EU's response? If you look at what Germany is saying, what France is saying, they're saying very different things about how you support it. And so, I think uh, that's going to be key for also seeing how investment goes into the defense industry. Energy security and provision, absolutely key to developing, you know, producing more arms. You need uh, energy to do that. Um, And of course, supply chains, which Martin talked about. And all, you know, I'm quite reassured because when I go to Brussels, these are things that you see, all that thinking is ongoing.
4: Essential question is which avenue the EU will be taking here with relation to Serbia and Ukraine? Is it the avenue following the principles of Copenhagen requirements, when we focus on the sound candidacy and applications of the member states, or do we rather move towards a discussion which has become mainstream these days about achieving the strategic autonomy? And we do perceive enlargement through Ukraine or Serbia as an attempt to offset any external influences with regards to Russia or with regards to Russia and China in Western Balkans. And uh, without further ado, I would like to introduce our two distinguished speakers who will provide their opinions and their take on the following questions. So first of all, we have Milena Lazarevic, who is one of the founders and program directors at the European Policy Center based in Belgrade. As a program director, Milena is in charge of the overall programmatic strategy of CEP as well as developing and managing the quality assurance systems and processes within the organization. The second speaker is Isabella Lazar, who was a war reporter for 15 years and covered major conflicts happening in the dissolution of Yugoslavia, mainly Croatia, Bosnia, Kosovo, but also in Chechnya and and in Afghanistan. She uh, she has been working for Le Figaro and currently deals with issues of defense and strategic security in this editorial office. So, with relation to the fundamental question about enlargement in favor of against and also how do we ensure that the same mistakes that happen in the enlargement process with relation to Western Balkans over the last 20 years is not replicated with relation to Ukraine? And finally, who joins first? Let's let's move to to the answers of our our guests, and we will begin with uh, Milena
10: Lazarevich. There is an inherent dichotomy uh, or choice in your question—a choice between focus on conditionality and merit—and uh, 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 on on the one hand, and on the other hand the achievement of eu's strategic autonomy and the geopolitical imperative uh, which obviously the 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 russian invasion uh, uh, over ukraine has brought to the front uh, more than ever before um and while it is tempting in these circumstances especially uh, with the with, with the raging war uh, uh, on the european continent to um to accept this kind of a trade-off between the two approaches, I still think that it has, the answer has to be both. That EU's enlargement to the Western Balkans, but also uh, to the East towards the new candidates has to respect both. That said, uh, I don't think that the current EU's enlargement policy is um, apt for both. I think that um, it has over the Uh, over the years, lost its transformative power. This has become quite visible uh, in the Western Balkan countries where obviously the stakes uh, have not been high enough to attract real true political will and resolve and commitment over the years. And in fact, in several countries of the region, we have seen uh backsliding we have seen uh a drop in political commitment and in the also in the uh relative importance of uh, eu and eu integration in the general political discourse uh it's uh, the the loss of its uh, uh, impact and presence in the political um, in the political uh discussions um, in the pre-election periods so basically in many of the countries of the region EU integration has become a non-issue politically. So how can you expect such a difficult process, um, such a transformative, fundamentally transformative process to go on if obviously the lure attraction is not there?
11: Um, yes, uh, Serbia or, or Ukraine, who will be first, uh, from where I am and where I speak, so somebody who is uh, um, analyzing uh, the, the diplomatic uh, area all over the places in in Europe, if I had to to bet, I would bet on uh, on Ukraine uh, for several reasons. Um, remember, in in Maidan in uh, in uh, two thousand thirteen and fourteen, and you had uh, European flags in Kiev all over the place. When um, when the Ukrainian troops uh, liberate Kherson, the first thing they do is to put a European flag with the Ukrainian flag. Uh, you, you don't have a, 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 such a European spirit anywhere else in Europe, as strong as you see in, in Ukraine. Um, and you see this uh, willing of uh, pushing the European uh, values and the, and the democratic uh, spirit. Ukraine is uh, uh, difficult, but uh, especially if, if Ukraine wins the war. One of the other reason is that uh, France and, and Germany have, uh, you know, decreased their um, their opposition. Uh, Macron, who was not uh, really a uh, uh, supporter of uh, of this uh, project, uh, has personally been to Kiev to. Offer this uh, in the name of the other uh, European members, but this uh, this uh, possibility.